Iran provoking President Trump in a very Trumpian way. The lead starts right now. Insults and the edge of war. President Trump threatening Iran with obliteration after Iran's president said the White House has a, quote, mental disability. How serious should Iran be taking President Trump's threat? The crisis on the border now dividing Democrats. The battle over emergency funding as migrant children go without toothbrushes and soap and sleep. Plus, one candidate is watching Trump, one is watching himself, and one is apparently working on his guns. How the 2020 Democrats are training for their most visible moment of the race so far. This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We begin today with breaking news in the world lead. Moments ago, President Trump told reporters he believes Iran takes his threats seriously and he does not need an exit strategy from the escalating confrontation. This comes after the president delivered an unmistakable threat to Iran's leadership, tweeting this morning that any attack on the U.S. will be met with, quote, great and overwhelming force and in some areas could result in, quote, obliteration. The comments a direct response to Iran's president saying that the mixed messages coming from the White House suggest a, quote, mental disability. As CNN's Boris Sanchez reports for us now, neither side is showing any signs of backing down. After deploying a round of threats on Twitter, President Trump insisting Iran takes his threats seriously. Do they take your threats seriously uh, now, Mr. President? I think everybody does. I think you do, too. Trump's maximum pressure campaign on Iran now getting personal. One day after Trump slapped Iran with new sanctions, Iran's president, Hassan Rouhani, taunting the White House, questioning how Trump could simultaneously ask for talks with the regime. They do strange things that no sane person in the history of world politics has done, or at least I don't remember. This is because of their total confusion. The White House is suffering from mental disability. Trump firing back with a string of tweets, promising war if Iran targets any U.S. interests. Quote, Iran's very ignorant and insulting statement put out today only shows that they do not understand reality. Any attack by Iran on anything American will be met with great and overwhelming force. In some areas, overwhelming will mean obliteration. The new threat coming as sources confirm the U.S. military launched a major cyber attack on an Iranian proxy group last week. Trump today also repeated a claim that he has many Iranian friends and he wants the regime to get rid of their hostility. But the president also boasted that if the U.S. went to war with Iran, there would be no need for an exit plan. Do you have an exit strategy for Iran if war does break out? Uh, you're not going to need an exit strategy. <laughs> I don't need exit strategies. Jake, President Trump also making clear in an interview with Hill TV that he may consult with members of Congress if he decides to have an armed conflict with Iran, but that he does not need their approval. That may not sit well with some lawmakers, including uh, Kentucky Congressman Rand Paul, who says that he believes that any president has to act on foreign policy with Congress's approval. Jake. All right, Boris Sanchez, thank you so much. Uh, joining me now is Republican Congressman Adam Kinzinger of Illinois. He serves on the Foreign Affairs Committee in the House. He also flew missions as an Air Force pilot in Iraq and Afghanistan. Congressman, thanks so much for you joining bet. us. You just heard President Trump say that he doesn't need an exit strategy when it comes to Iran. Uh, what's your reaction to that? I don't look too much into that. I, I'm not a big fan of foreign policy by Twitter, but I think the president in this case is right to actually be pretty tough in his talk. I mean, the reality is... 
Iran better not think that they can do what they did, for instance, to the drone last time. I, I thought, frankly, the president should have struck in areas of Iran, at least with what they used, and, and hit them back. But the bottom line is, looking at this, you have to say, being tough in talk, I think, can keep them from maybe doing the next thing. And if all, all you have to do is look at 40 years of history of how Iran talks, and you know that all he's doing is matching their rhetoric. The, um, you said uh, that uh, you also heard President Trump say that he, he, he thinks that Iran uh, believes his threats. You just said that you think he should have uh, done a, you know, a proportionate strike back. I assume you, you agree with that, the proportionate. Um, what do you think the president should have done, given that you oppose his pulling back? So I, I, I don't take as much issue with the fact that he didn't strike. I would have, and I think they certainly deserved at least a you use it, you lose it kind of thing. Whereas if you use equipment against our state, you're at least going to lose that. But I think when it comes down to it at the bottom line, the president uh, really should just kind of be ready to do what he needs to do. And so when I, when I see all that, I'm kind of like, you know, rhetoric, whatever that is, putting the troops in, whatever that is, and the strikes have got to stand by and be ready. I just want to double down on the question about an exit strategy for a second because yeah. you said you don't, you don't judge. The, he didn't say that on Twitter. He said it in person. And I think one of the things that the American people, left and right, can agree is that too often... Our leaders, whether they're in the Pentagon or the White House, uh, from both parties uh, or non, no party, take our fighting men and women like you, put you into harm's way, and there isn't an exit strategy. Yeah, I think if we get to a point where there's an armed conflict, then there needs to be an exit strategy for sure. There needs to be conditions for what victory looks like. There needs to be, you know, whatever targets have to be taken out or whatever that final thing is. Uh, but when it comes down to it, it's, uh, I think in this case, with what we're looking at, is making it clear to Iran that if they threaten American interests like they've done for 40 years, if they continue to attack American troops, frankly, like they've targeted in Iraq, there's going to be a response that is going to be at the level of what it deserves to be. I don't think, and everybody that kind of jumps to this 300,000 troops in Iran is the next step, I don't think it is. I think there is a sliding scale of military response where the cost to Iran would exceed any damage they could do to us. And that in and of itself uh, can keep Iran from doing that because they know there's no gain for them in it. But when you talk about the sliding scale, you talked about how you would have advised a you use it, you lose it strategy. Iran fires on our drone. We fire on their missile base or whatever it was that, that, that took out our drone. Are you concerned at all that, that any military strike would escalate the conflict, ultimately leading to, to loss of life, both innocent Iranians innocent Americans, innocent people in the region. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's always a concern. I think that's why the messaging to Iran has to be basically that proportional. If you use it, you lose it, because they know if they, re if they re react disproportionately or frankly react at all when they initiated the action, the back and forth, that we have bigger options sitting behind that we can use that we're not. So this is where basically that patience, that being clear about what our reaction will be, could actually be de-escalatory and I think, frankly, prevent Iran from making the kind of mistake they made last time. Keep in mind, Jake, shooting down that drone, it's not like your uncle's drone in the backyard. It's the size of an airliner and it's the equivalent in cost of destroying about eight F-16s. So this was a massive issue. The president, it was his determination not to strike, that's fine. Uh, but I think it now needs to be clear to Iran that there will be consequences. Iran said today they have no interest in obtaining nuclear weapons. Listen to what National Security Advisor John Bolton said regarding a desire to bring Iran to the negotiating table. The president has held the door open to real negotiations 
to completely and verifiably eliminate Iran's nuclear weapons program. All that Iran needs to do is to walk through that open door. Iran says they have never left the negotiating table. They're still in the Iran deal. It's the U.S. left that left. Yeah, but I think the, the point on this is very clear. So after Iran entered the deal, I wasn't a big fan of the deal. After they entered the deal, you constrained to an extent a nuclear weapon program for a finite amount of time. But what we saw immediately after that was a massive cash infusion into their expeditions all around the Middle East. You saw it in Syria, Yemen, uh, Lebanon, and elsewhere. And so what the president and his prerogative came in and said is, we're fine with a nuclear deal. It has to last longer. We're already halfway through, basically, when parts start expiring. But then on top of that, we have to ensure that you're not going to take any benefit and use it on these forays and attack American interests, allies, friends, etc. All right, Republican Congressman Adam Kinzinger, thanks for your time. As always, we appreciate it. You bet, Jake. See ya. Why the government says they are now returning dozens of children to a border detention facility just a day after they'd been removed. Then, a sitting congressman accused of illegally using campaign money to pay for lavish trips with his wife. And now there's a new tw twist involving trips and other activities with women who are decidedly not his wife. Stay with us. How was today? Doing good. In our national lead now, the acting Customs and Border Protection Commissioner is out. John Sanders is leaving effective July 5th, giving no specific reason for his departure, though his exit comes amid the escalating humanitarian crisis at the border and widespread criticism of the facilities in which migrant children are being kept. Democrats in the House are currently fighting about legislation that would provide approximately $4 billion to pay for housing for undocumented immigrants and their children. Progressive Democrats have said they're worried some of the money could be used for other purposes and to support President Trump's hardline policies. Speaker Pelosi is telling Democrats, however, that the money is, quote, for the children, funding diapers, food, blankets, beds, and other necessities. CNN's Sunland Serfati is on Capitol Hill, and CNN's Nick Valencia is in Clint, Texas, outside a border facility housing children, one that has been widely criticized by human rights lawyers for being neither safe nor sanitary. Let's start with Sunland. Sunland, a, a meeting among House Democrats about this funding bill was described by one member as very tense. Where do things stand right now? Well, things, Jake, up here on Capitol Hill have been very fluid all day, but a deal between Democratic leadership and House progressives who, at the start of this day, have been very unhappy with this bill, it does seem to be emerging now at this late hour. Tell, sources tell CNN that leadership in the House, they do now believe that they have everyone within their caucus on the same page, that they've been working for a considerable amount of this day to um, bring everyone in, to make changes, make uh, last tweaks to the final legislative text specifically to try to appease progressives who had been very unhappy earlier in the day. They wanted additional guardrails to be added, uh, as one member described a short time ago, to, to ensure that migrant children are protected more and a potentially a very good sign for leadership just in the last few hours. Congresswoman Jayapal, she's, who is the co-chair of the uh, Progressive Congress, she says that she's happy with the changes that leadership has now made, and including new language outlining the minimum conditions for care, which she says cannot be waived. Democratic leadership, Jake, are still pushing to hold a vote on this later today in the House, and they are projecting confidence when it hits the floor. They believe it will pass. All right, Sutherland, thanks. Let's go now to, to Clinton, Texas, to that border facility where Nick Valencia is. It was called unconscionable by doctors, advocates, lawyers. President Trump said this afternoon he's very concerned about the conditions at these places. Nick, nearly 250 children were moved from the facility behind you after the horrific conditions were revealed, but you're learning that some of those transferred kids are now being moved back to that same facility? 
Yeah, an estimated 100 migrants are being moved back. Child migrants are moving back. And the concern, of course, Jake, is that they're going right back into the very conditions that they were moved from, that they were called, uh, legal monitors called unconscionable. The decision to move these children back was because, according to Customs and Border Protection, there was no longer concern about overcrowding. But the details that we're getting from those independent monitors who visited this facility last week are just heartbreaking. Children sleeping on the floor, some with no mattresses, teenagers going up to three weeks without having a shower, children essentially left to fend for themselves. And earlier on a phone call with Customs and Border Protection, they used the time to highlight the progress that they've made, saying that they are stretched thin by the resources that they have currently and the influx of migrants. Here in the El Paso sector, they're dealing with uh, triple the amount of migrants that they had at the same time last year. This much is clear. There is a lot of politics being played while the lives of thousands of children hang in the balance. Jake. All right, Nick Valencia in Clinton, Texas. Thanks so much. Let's chew over all this with our, our uh, experts. Uh, Laura, let me start with you. Um, the suspicion among progressives in the House is that some of this money will be enabling of the Trump administration. But the, the acting eight, uh, Department of Homeland Security uh, uh, Secretary McAleen and Kevin McAleen, and he's been warning for months and months and months that this crisis was going to happen and he needed this money, most of it, three billion of it, for facilities for kids. Right, but the progressives are worried that now that the acting uh, CBP director is stepping down, chief is stepping down, that they, that these are agencies that are in chaos, they don't know where the money is going, and so what they really want is some kind of enforcement mechanism, that if this money is then directed to go to DHS and CBP, that they have some kind of, quote, hammer, as Mark Pocan of Wisconsin put it. He's another leader of, of the Progressive Caucus. They want an enforcement mechanism, uh, stronger language in there. And they did get a few concessions last night that makes them happier. And part of that is making sure that there are standards for hygiene and nutrition um, at these detention facilities for these children migrants. And, and for want of a better term, let's uh, say that the acting DHS uh, secretary, McAleenan, is, a, is, a, is pragmatic. And then the, uh, versus uh, some of the others in the administration who are hardliners, just for simplicity's sake. Uh, his now outgoing replacement at, uh, at CBP, Customs and Border Protection, uh, is resigning. What does that mean? Does that mean that a hardliner will be put in there necessarily? That seems to be what the administration has done in the past. But I don't think we know yet. In, to Laura's point, these are agencies in chaos the, there isn't a lot of clarity about who is actually driving the car other than the president himself. And we also have an administration that he doesn't like to put permanent people in these positions. And, and so that in and of itself creates a lot of instability. And you can see how things aren't being followed through. Uh, independent monitors are the ones who had to whistleblow about these facilities. And it, it really is, um, you can understand why there is a lot of mistrust among members of Congress with this administration, because there isn't anyone driving the train. And we're just learning, actually, right now that the acting chief of ICE, Mark Morgan, who is considered a hardliner, uh, is expected to take over as acting commissioner of Customs and Border Protection. That's according to an official. Take a listen uh, to what Morgan said back in January about some of these detained minors. I've been in the detention facilities where I've walked up to these individuals that are so-called minors, 17 or under, and I've looked at them and I've looked at their eyes, Tucker, and I said, that is a soon-to-be MS-13 gang member. It's unequivocal. <clears throat> He's now going to be overseeing the situation, Paul. What an idiot. I'm sorry. You can, you really, is he like the amazing Kreskin? He can look in the eyes of a child and decide whether he's going to become a gang member, and he is going to be running this? It, what we're doing to these children is inhumane. Uh, I have to say, that the, the Democrats, now that they have real power, they're going to have to govern, not just oppose.
And, and, you know, the progressive caucus needs to be for progress. It sounds like they are. It's just like Pelosi's pulled her people together. But for our, so it looks like Nancy Pelosi's doing her job as speaker, which is to make progress and try to help these children, even if some, some of the money goes to things that they don't support. That's practical progress. That's good. For this man to say something that hateful, that racist uh, about children, it's really shocking. It, it does seem to me that, that while this might appeal to the president's base, this is a horrible issue for Republicans writ large uh, going into an election season. Yeah, and by, and by the way, I agree with you. It seemed to be like an audience of one there in that clip that we saw. But yeah, I mean, ultimately, the, the, what happens is the command and control structure, when it um, collapses like this, um, people's belief that the, that the government can get and solve crisis problems like this, um, it begins to wane. And when that begins to wane, you have, um, you have people that sort of worry about how this plays politically. So I think what, the, what Republicans really like is the contrast that you're seeing up on Capitol Hill, which is getting to fight over who's to blame here and who's politicizing it more often. But one of the big problems is that if you're in charge and your job is to run an effective government and the government doesn't look effective, I think that becomes a problem for the administration uh, as, as, as this goes on. Take a listen, uh, Laura, to uh, Tim Ryan, the congressman from Ohio who's running for president uh, in the Democratic primaries. He had some words for President Trump over this border crisis. He wants this to be a political issue. This is what he wants. Every single day, he's in the news about being tough on immigrants. Well, go fix the damn problem. He's not a leader. He's not a leader at all. He is a, uh, a, a TV host. You know, he, he's, he's running The Apprentice out of the White House, and kids are suffering. And so the issue for Democrats is presenting an alternative, because they know that Trump is going to be talking about this the way he did in 2016, all through 2020, um, releasing uh, more hardline proposals. Uh, and so that's why Pelosi really wants this bill to get passed today. She told members in a caucus meeting this morning, if you vote against this bill, it's a vote for Trump. And we don't want to show that weakness when we're about to put this on the floor. And take a listen to Republican Congressman Michael Burgess. He represents a district outside Dallas talking about these detention facilities for children. You know what? There's not a lock on the door. Any child is free to leave at any time, but they don't. And okay. you know why? Because they're well taken care of. He's the chairman of the House Subcommittee on Health. You know why they don't leave? Because they're six years old. Well, yeah, that's a suboptimal answer. And I believe he was talking about a different facility, not mm -hmm. the one in, in mm -hmm. Clint. Um, yeah, so if, if that, that is not what Republicans want to put out there. And you're going to be hearing Democrats contrast this in the debate tomorrow night. Um, and it, it really is. It, it's a shocking thing to say. But yeah, these are little kids. These are toddlers that were in this Associated Press report that we all read the other day. All right, everyone stick around. We've got a lot more to talk about. Think of it like a, a round of speed dating, having campaign supporters play opponents during mock debates, watching Republicans. These are just some of the ways 2020 Democrats are getting ready for tomorrow night, the big debate. Stay with us. It's debate eve in our 2020 lead. Democratic presidential hopefuls are hunkered down with last-minute preparations ahead of the first crucial debate of this election cycle. For former Vice President Joe Biden, that means studying his own record and preparing for rivals to attack him on it. Senator Bernie Sanders is skipping mock debates. Instead, he's looking for ways he can contrast his views with those of his opponents. Senator Amy Klobuchar is watching the 2016 Republican debates, trying to figure out how she can stand out on a crowded stage. I want to break down these strategies with my panel of experts. Uh, Jackie, let me start with you. What's the most important thing candidates should be doing today 
in preparation for the debates. Yeah, in addition to the contrast you mentioned, I think just keeping their answers short. We forget how ten, a group of 10 people, how f- short their answers have to be and how little they can stand out. So it's keeping their policy is condensed, particularly someone like an Elizabeth Warren, keeping it short and snappy so people remember it. Now, you uh, worked for the Bill Clinton campaign in, in 1992 and 96 also, right? So what, what do you, I mean, that's a guy who needs to be told to keep it quick. <laughs> you well, but especially on a, on a stage, what, what would you be telling uh, these candidates? I, I, would be, I would tell them that I know the questions. I know the first question for sure. And the second, the third, and the 18th. Can you beat Donald Trump? That's the question Democrats want. So, so Jake Tapper may ask, what's your position on taxes or trade or Iran? The real subtext for the voters is, are you the one who can deliver me from Donald Trump? They have to keep that in mind. It's fine to have policy positions. It's fine to chase ideological. It's actually unwise to chase ideological purity. Democrats are really pragmatic. They just want to beat Trump. Kamala Harris is campaign on her years as a prosecutor. One campaign source uh, telling CNN uh, they're, they're warning uh, their candidates uh, uh, not to confront uh, each other uh, because all you're doing uh, necessarily is, well, Jen Palmieri, who advised Hillary Clinton, said, quote, if you attack someone, you end up helping the third person, not yourself. So how much does a prosecution of another candidate on stage hurt you? Well, I think you have to remember that the biggest name that is on stage is not physically there, and that's Donald Trump. Right, you have to right. prosecute the case against Donald Trump. Right. And let the contrast emerge. Paul's right. The most the important thing to remember in campaigns, and particularly in, in uh, debates, is the, the aggressor always wins the debates in the minds of the audience. So you have to be very aggressive in prosecuting that case against Trump. And the other thing, too, is the audience is going to decide who won this debate in the first 30 minutes. You have to have a very big moment from the get-go. You cannot wait and bide your time uh, d- during, this, during this debate. I think there are a lot of Democrats out there, and you tell me what you think, Laura, of talking to voters, uh, who are very uncomfortable with Democrats attacking each other. But it's kind of necessary, at least in some way, to do that in order to contrast yourself, especially if you're, say, Julian Castro on a stage uh, and you're trying to contrast yourself with Joe Biden uh, or uh, Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders. Yeah, and if you're Kamala Harris or... um or Pete Buttigieg, you kind of need a moment in these debates because Buttigieg is faltering in the polls. Harris hasn't, we haven't seen her surge at all. But to your point, I mean, a lot of these Democrats, the voters are tired because of what happened in 2016. They don't want what happened last time, this brutal primary of slugging it out and then feeling as though they couldn't unite behind uh, Clinton in the end. They don't want that to happen again because, as Paul said, so many of these voters are really just concerned about who's going to ultimately beat Trump. But there is this subtext, right, about like Joe Biden saying, I'm going to go after these voters, these these people who voted for Trump, who can be brought back into the Democratic Party. And then there are other candidates uh, on the left, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, who say, you don't need to do that. Mm. We just need to motivate our base. We need to get out African-American voters, young voters, Latino voters. And that's a subtext for all of this. It is. And that's an interesting strategic debate. And I do think voters, Democrats, are more strategic than they have been in the past. In the past, I think Democrats tend to be ideological, or they tend, as President Clinton used to say, uh, Democrats want to fall in love, Republicans just want to fall in line. I think Democrats want to fall in line. The the right answer to that question, of course, is both. Both. Barack Obama carried dozens of counties that Donald Trump carried. He carried states that Donald Trump carried. We don't have to choose. We have to do both. We have to motivate our base and reach out to those swing voters. And the cool thing is, 
there are a collection of issues, particularly around health care and middle class economics, that appeal to both. That's what you need is web issues, not wedge issues. Well, that one of the things about that, Jackie, is that there are a lot of progressives out there who were very disappointed with uh, eight years of Barack Obama, who thought that he, he basically campaigned a, a, as a centrist. Well, right. And they're and, all on Twitter. Every last one of them. Every last one of them. And yeah. those people aren't going to be looking at Joe Biden. They're going to be looking who seems to be, at least on the stump, running more of a general election campaign than a primary election campaign. So they're going to be looking at, at Bernie Sanders, at Elizabeth Warren, at some of these more progressive uh, candidates that are trying to go further to the left. Now, whether that will work long term, we do not know. But and you're certainly seeing someone like a Kamala Harris try to court those voters as well. And uh, again, it's going to be an exciting night. What do you do if you're Joe Biden in terms of attacks? Because I, I, I think it's in, in, uh, a certainty that Bernie Sanders will criticize Biden, not personally and not on Hunter Biden's lobbying or anything like that, but on Biden's position on the war in Iraq or Biden's position opposing Medicare for all. What do you do if you're Joe Biden? Do you just ignore it? I don't think you ignore it, but I think you quickly pivot to the real perceived opposition, which is the, which is Trump and contrasting yourself with Trump and some of the wrong decisions that you think were made were never related to that policy. The one thing you can't do is just get in thinking that you can get into a one on one with Bernie Sanders alone, because that's actually going to you know, drag down Bernie, drag you down to where Bernie Sanders wants you in a one-on-one with the, with the perceived front-runner, and then you're going to lose your focus on the larger uh, thing that's motivating Democratic voters, which is the idea that who, which which of these candidates can go out there and represent the Democratic Party's core beliefs, but also can go toe-to-toe, head-to-head with Donald Trump in the general election. All right, everyone stick around. Uh, first, a congressman is accused of illegally using campaign funds to live a lavish lifestyle with his wife. And now new details involving not just one or two or even three alleged extramarital girlfriends, the bizarre twist in the Duncan Hunter affair. That's next. The politics lead now. Federal prosecutors just filed documents containing explosive new allegations against Republican Congressman Duncan Hunter of California. The U.S. attorney alleging that Hunter used campaign cash to pursue extramarital relationships with five different women, including lobbyists and congressional staffers. As part of their case that Hunter and his wife misused campaign money to fund a lavish lifestyle, prosecutors are now saying that, quote, Hunter spent thousands of dollars treating women to meals, drinks and vacations and traveling to and from their homes, women who are decidedly not Hunter's wife. As CNN's Tom Foreman now reports, the new allegations come at a time that Hunter's wife has agreed to cooperate with investigators. Through five affairs with five different women, the court documents allege Republican Congressman Duncan Hunter spent thousands of dollars embezzled from campaign funds for hotel rooms, golf, a concert, car rentals, meals, and much more. The arch-conservative married lawmaker has always insisted he's done nothing wrong. Let's uh, go to court. Let's have a trial. And, and everybody will see everything. Last year, he and his wife were first accused of using campaign cash to live a lavish lifestyle. But his wife recently agreed to cooperate with prosecutors after Hunter blamed her for misusing the funds. The new details, if proven, are damning. 
For example, the papers describe a trip to Heavenly Mountain Resort in California in 2010, where the congressman and a female lobbyist spent the weekend skiing, ordering room service, and enjoying the amenities, using his campaign credit card to cover the $1,000 tab and more campaign cash for travel. Other trips with the same woman? A double date to Virginia Beach, where prosecutors say Hunter dropped $900. A concert at which Hunter spent $121 in campaign funds on beer, nachos, and wings, and a golf outing with greens fees for two, ten beers, an Adidas shirt, and a visor, all paid for, prosecutors contend, with campaign money. At the Republican convention in Tampa in 2012, the papers say Hunter took up with a woman who worked for a Republican House leadership member, using campaign funds to cover dinners, cocktails, and Uber rides to her home. A similar pattern allegedly occurred with another woman from his own office in early 2015, where the papers say the two occasionally spent nights together. Then again with another lobbyist that fall, and yet again with another lobbyist the next year. Hunter, who was one of the earliest congressional backers of Donald Trump, insists this too is a witch hunt, telling Politico, you have criminally political prosecutors in this case on a personal smear campaign. No direct response to CNN from Hunter today. For now, the congressman who has been stripped of all of his committee assignments is holding on to his office but it is worth noting the papers wink at even more undisclosed, salacious behavior, also allegedly paid for with campaign cash. And I guess we'll find out this fall if this actually goes to trial as expected. All right, Tom Foreman, thanks so much. In our 2020 lead, Senators Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders will not share the same stage this week in the crucial first back-to-back Democratic debates. But Warren and Sanders will be pushing a lot of the same type of proposals. And as CNN's Jeff Zeleny now reports, There's a battle between the two candidates that has been brewing since Sanders' last presidential run. Never mind Joe Biden. For now, one of the most intense contests unfolding in the Democratic primary is between Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. It's a battle promising Warren's big ideas. This is our chance in 2020, our chance to dream big, to fight hard, and to win. And Sanders' pledge for a revolution. So in 2016, with your help, we began the political revolution. And now in 2019, we're going to complete what we began. As they prepare for the first Democratic debate this week in Miami, their broader policy ideas are similar, with calls to implement Medicare for all and to fight income inequality. But there are differences, like their respective plans to relieve student debt. Sanders would wipe out all outstanding student debt in the country. But Warren is proposing to forgive up to $50,000 for anyone in households making less than six figures a year. It's a subtle but key distinction beginning to frame their dueling candidacies. They insist it's a friendly fight. I think Bernie is terrific. We were friends long, long before I ever got involved in politics. Elizabeth Ike is a friend of mine. I think she's running a good campaign. Yet just beneath the surface, tensions are rising. Some Sanders supporters have never forgiven Warren. I'm here today because I'm with her. For endorsing Hillary Clinton in 2016 before Sanders dropped out. And Sanders is making clear he feels footsteps, 
suddenly painting Warren as more of an establishment candidate. After the moderate Democratic group Third Way recently said they prefer her candidacy to his. Uh, they prefer Senator Warren to you. I don't care who they prefer. That's not what I'm talking about, but I am talking about the need to have a Democratic Party that represents the working families of this country. Many Warren admirers we talk to, like Regina Bailey, say they like Sanders, but believe she's the fresh face of the left, can win and favor her softer touch. It's not so, it's not as um, upsetting to other people. But Sanders loyalists like Nina Turner say his ideas are driving the 2020 conversation. And only he can bring sweeping change. So people have to decide, do they want the original or do they want copies? So he's the original. He's the original. So Bernie Sanders may be the original, but the question is, is Elizabeth Warren the 2.0 of the Sanders campaign? Now, Senator Warren has been going across the country, rising in popularity. She's probably working harder than any other candidate in terms of number of events, questions taken, et cetera. Jake, she'll be doing a town hall meeting here on the campus of Florida International University on the eve of her debate. Now, they are not going to be competing, at least standing side by side. But, Jake, there is no question they're occupying the same space. Progressive groups now are torn between Warren and Sanders. Jake? Jeff Zeleny in Miami, thanks so much. Coming up, a new White House press secretary announced by the First Lady. That story next. In the politics lead, one of the longest serving members of the Trump administration is now officially becoming its public face. Stephanie has been with me from the beginning. That's Stephanie that President Trump's referring to would be Stephanie Grisham. She's a Trump White House original. She's now assuming duties as White House communications director and press secretary, in addition to keeping her old job as communications director for First Lady Melania Trump. Uh, Kevin, you know her. You worked with her on the Romney campaign in 2012. That's a, that's a lot of responsibility. Three jobs, three White House jobs, presumably not three White House salaries, um, for one person, no matter how gifted. Yeah, well, look, she's very focused on the job at hand. She's going to be very focused on three jobs at hand in this case. Um, but she's also very loyal to the team collectively. I think that's very important to this uh, this president. And then let's be realistic, too. There really is no press secretary in this administration. The president is his own spokesperson. The president is his own face before the American people and the media. And I think that's the way it's going to always be. She was known or is known as Melania Trump's enforcer, really, you know, very strongly protecting uh, the image of the first lady. She's very loyal, and so a, lo a lot of the press corps thinks that she actually could end up being an attack dog, but they also do expect her to maybe maintain this uh, no-briefing streak because she has been behind the scenes from the campaign on through her tenure as Melania's uh, press secretary, and so she's not necessarily that comfortable yet in front of the cameras. Um, and I have to say, like, I... White House press briefings do have an important role. It's an opportunity for people to hold an administration, any administration, accountable for things going on in front of the world. Absolutely. And I'm sure the uh, White House Press Association is going to push her to uh, bring back the briefing. But I think Laura's right. I mean, if, if you know, her role with Melania Trump is any guide, she's certainly someone who speaks to the press. She's certainly someone who will call you back. But in terms of actually taking on the role as it has been in the past, uh, that really remains to be seen and probably is doubtful. Remind us of what press secretaries used to do. <laughs> they used to have this really interesting hybrid role. They obviously work for the, the government of the United States, the people of the United States, the president of the United States. But unique in the White House, the press secretary 
ought to be an advocate for the press as well. And Sheer, he is, is kind of betwixt and between these two worlds. I, I'd say uh, Sarah Sanders is a miserable failure at that, as was her predecessor, Mr. Spicer. They seem to believe that attack dog is the only mode. Sometimes you have to. But the truth is it's not Spicer's fault. It's not Sarah Sanders' fault. It's not going to be Stephanie. I'm sure it'll work out great for her. But it's not going to be her fault either. We, I always used to say this when I was a White House aide. Focus on the organ grinder, not the monkeys. I was just a monkey. <laughs> staff guys, staff gals, we're just monkeys. We come and we go. It's the organ grinder. Donald Trump gets terrible press because Donald Trump does a terrible job. All right. Thanks, everyone. You're not going to change it. A Medal of Honor recipient like no other in history. His story of bravery in battle. That's next. Stay with us. National lead now, President Trump just minutes ago awarding the Medal of Honor for the very first time to a living veteran of the Iraq War. Army Staff Sergeant David Bellavia is heralded for saving the lives of an entire squad during a deadly firefight with insurgents in Fallujah, Iraq in 2004. CNN's Barbara Starr now reports on Bellavia's extraordinary acts of bravery, which took place on his birthday. Staff Sergeant David Bellavia is the first living veteran of the Iraq War to receive the Medal of Honor. David, today we honor your extraordinary courage. We salute your selfless service. In 2004, Fallujah in western Iraq was violently slipping out of control. Get back, get back, get back to fight. Bellavia was leading a squad of soldiers to clear a block of buildings where insurgents had taken cover. We knew exactly what type of urban fight it was going to be, and, and it, it turned out to be everything we expected. According to the Army, Bellavia entered a house multiple times, killing or wounding multiple insurgents on two floors. One of the insurgents even loading a rocket-propelled grenade launcher before being killed by Bellavia. He put himself in the line of that fire and laid down a base of fire, overwhelmed the enemy long enough for me to get myself and the members of my squad out. Eventually, more troops arrived, which only added to the chaos. Everyone in that building was bleeding. Everyone in that building had glass, metal, ricochets. You got friendly fire, enemy fire, and you're stuck in the middle of it. There aren't a whole lot of options. Any hesitation would have cost lives. And uh, my entire unit did the job that they were trained to do. Bellavia says the honor is not all about him. This is the Iraq War Medal of Honor, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, I share this with, with everyone. Now, uh, none of the Americans, thankfully, in this battle were killed. And it's been a 15-year journey for David Bellavia from Fallujah to the White House to be fully recognized for his efforts to save his buddies. Jake? All right, Barbara Starr at the Pentagon, thanks so much. And of course, our thanks to Staff Sergeant David Bellavia and his family for his service and their sacrifice. You can follow me on Facebook and Twitter at Jake Tapper. Tweet the show at The Lead CNN. Our coverage on CNN continues right now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max. 
a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.